There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Monday, October 24th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We know how political discussion and networks surveying the opinions of Democrats and Republicans work. You get analysis inflected by partisanship, but sometimes you get pure partisanship masquerading as analysis. It happens. Both sides do it. All the sides do it. Non-political journalism does it too. In financial journalism, it's called talking your book. CNBC might have on a trader. He would disclose his position, ideally. I think Apple's going to go up to 200 by June, and he might give you his reasons why. This is called talking your book, talking up the positions you have. And if you disclose it, the audience is better off. And something like that goes on with elections when they hire a Democrat, when they hire a Republican. Oftentimes, well, what you ideally want is their analysis uninflected by the fact that they have a particular political leaning, but you don't often get that. So on Meet the Press, Democratic pollster Cornell Belcher was asked about all the recent data showing an undeniable trend away from the Democrats in the midterms. His insight, he denied it. Look, I I think broadly, a lot of you are wrong. He backed it up by saying that sentiment had changed, the narrative had changed. Mm -hmm. Over on CNN, current contributor there and former director of communications for the Democratic National Committee, Karen Finney, was asked about her take on poll data that host Jake Tapper laid out was clearly trending towards Republicans. We know, Karen Finney. Yes. That. These polls historically undercount Republicans. Generally, Democrats only feel comfortable going into Election Day if they're up six to eight points on the generic. Mm-hmm. And here you are down three to five on the generic. Can't be feeling good. I am feeling good. You are? Oh, I am feeling good. And then she proceeded to talk her book, which maybe some people may have gotten something out of. These people are on TV. Maybe they're thinking, if I betray hopelessness, potential voters will become hopeless. If I sound confident, voters who I prefer, the candidates of whom I also support, maybe those voters will be enthused. Of course, no one will ever hold these people accountable for their bad calls. We will say they were just doing their job as they were hired to do so. They just talked their book. Or maybe they'll get it right. Who knows? But what I'd like as a viewer is, were they to get it right, to lay out some theories why the Democrats will win. I know the polls show that, but let me tell you, I am picking up that the importance of Dobbs is much more important than you even are giving credit for. Or I believe that Republican support for election deniers is just about tweaking the Democrats and something you say to pollsters and will evaporate on election day. Something like that. It's not usually what I get. And then over in The Nation, there's Joan Walsh writing an essay. One poll can't show that the Dobbs effect is gone, subhead. Momentum may have shifted to the GOP. It may not have. One poll, flawed or not, tells us nothing. She's right in that a New York Times poll seemed to overstate how much independent women could have moved. But she's wrong in that it's just one poll. It's almost every poll. So you could pick on one weird and probably wrong piece of data, but why expend your credibility writing a takedown of a trend 
that is directionally correct and in concurrence with many other data points. Not every Democrat or Republican partisan does this. Over on Hacks on Tap, where they have a Republican and they have a couple of Democrats, Democratic operative Robert Gibbs was on last week acknowledging, yeah, the polls are going against Democrats. Here's why. Here's why it might not be. But he acknowledged what all the data was saying. And Herschel Walker didn't do so great in the debate. He acknowledged that it was true. And they talked about why, say, Raphael Warnock might have uh, missed some opportunities to tweak Walker. This was the opposite of the Washington Post Jennifer Rubin, who wrote a piece, SNL has better coverage of Herschel Walker than the mainstream media. Her thesis after the debate was right up top. The mainstream media persist in portraying unfit Republican candidates as normal. And the midterms is an ordinary clash of policy differences. I ask you, does that comport with your glimpses into the Georgia Senate race, the Herschel Walker candidacy, that the media has just been holding him up as normal, that they fail to point out that he is flawed, unqualified, plagued with embarrassing revelations? Are you getting that from the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC News? The gist? Put myself in the mainstream. What is the point of this piece of media criticism that Rubin wrote, except as a psychological bomb for those who can't believe Walker still may win and they want to blame someone? It's slightly different from talking your book, which is a prediction based on predilection. This is talking your peak, saying, you know, anyone not mocking Walker is doing it wrong. Maybe you were looking at that race and you just can't understand why everyone doesn't find Walker is just making a mockery of a senatorial election. Okay, but that's what we have political experts for, to attempt to make you understand why everyone isn't on that oh-so-obvious page. Of course, Rubin's piece was the most read and shared on the Washington Post opinion page for 24 hours. I guess pundits just don't get to talk their books. The public is very eager to read them. On the show today, I give you Not Even Mad, a somewhat of a takeover of the show. What I've done is invited my two co-hosts of the podcast, Not Even Mad, which drops on Wednesday, though you could subscribe today. I've invited them on and had them talk about why we believe in exchanging ideas, even if we really disagree with each other, the value of hashing it out, how maybe not to get mad while hashing it out where we see the media going. That's part one. Then we'll take a break. And in the place of the spiel, which is a place for opinions and questioning one's opinions, we'll do that, but I'll not do it as a monologue with tape. I'll do it in the form of the kind of discussion you will hear on Not Even Mad. We'll do a segment, the kind of segment that will take place on Not Even Mad, but not literally a segment from the first show because we tape the first show on Tuesday. And it'll air Wednesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. This will be an indication of the kind of thing that you're after. So, Virginia Heffernan, Jamie Kerchick, and uh, there in the middle, this guy named Mike Pesca of Not Even Mad, up next. Hey, all you true crime fans. This is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. 
So when I was a young man, yes, I carried my sack and lived the life of a rover, but I also listened to a lot of political talk shows and the mode of the day, and not just when I was a young man, through my 20s, through my professional life, the way that a panel discussion would go is that different people with different opinions would essentially have at it. There was a a bad and superficial way of doing this, and Jon Stewart lectured Tucker Carlson about this, but there was also a deep, and to me as a member of the audience, a deeply satisfying way to do this. Now, I noticed as a consumer of political talk shows, mostly in the form of podcasts, we have gotten away from that mode. And so I, as the maker of a talk show, said, we must change this. And I set about to do that. I got my friend Virginia Heffernan on board. I said, Virginia, who is a person who we respect and can come to love and maybe has different positions from you, slightly different positions from me. You and I have different positions from each other. And Jamie Kerchick filled that role. Jamie is the author of Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Virginia blogs at Magic and Loss, and she's a columnist for Wired. They're both here, and we are here to announce the most impressive and important media event of 2022, the launch of a new podcast called Not Even Mad. Virginia, hello and thank you. I am so excited. We're finally, we can finally, I don't know, JB can tell us if we can be coming out with this news. Maybe we're just uh, presenting it. Jamie, is it true that we're coming out and we'd better get the party started? Well, I am literally, you know, I've, in order to perfect the sound, for this show, I have been forced back into my closet. <laughs> I'm literally sitting in my bedroom, in my closet. I've been out of this closet for 20 years, only to be thrust back in. So thank you guys. I really appreciate that. <laughs> it's important how we sound. So, Jamie, I think you more or less agree with me in my assessment of where, let's call it, the discourse has gone. But Virginia... Do you do you see what I've been talking about, that it's a little depressing that we don't have these fiery disagreements anymore? Oh, I loved the policy ones. Like, come on, let's just say who we're talking about, which is Buckley and Gore Vidal. I mean, those showdowns were amazing. That's where we got crypto fascism and people in high dudgeon about their military service. Just and don't we, call me you know, a queer, please. <laughs> oh my God, exactly. You queer. But actually it wasn't it, now queers, right. Now queers too woke for you, Jamie, right? Yes, absolutely. Sh- yes. Please take a lot of umbrage if I get it wrong. Um, because, you know, if we're not always indignant, then we're not living up to our forebears in those. <laughs> That's two. right. We might be indignant, but we're not even mad. <laughs> so Jamie, you're a little younger than Virginia and I was there ever? And by the way, the Buckley discussions with James Baldwin at the Oxford uh, Debate Society and, and, and the Gore Vidal one. To me, these are just things to uh, from history. I'm speaking more of even a good ABC This Week panel discussion with Cokie Roberts and Sam Donaldson or the Janu ignorance slut, which was which was a parody of Crossfire. But Crossfire, you know, in the 80s was good. Do you remember this time and do you long for it? Well, I'm uh, an old soul. And since we're talking about Buckley, I think the greatest of these um, political discussion shows was was his own firing line which was on for about 35 years on public broadcasting. And there you had Bill Buckley, the you know dean of the American conservative movement, and he would have people from all different political pers- perspectives on his show. He had Allen Ginsberg. He had various members of the Black Panthers, Noam Chomsky. And they would sit and they would have very intellectual, intelligent debates. 
And you can watch most of these on uh, the internet now. And uh, I, I hope we can model something like that. You know, I'm not trying to compare myself or any of us to, you know, Bill Buckley. I certainly don't have the uh, vocabulary that Bill Buckley did. Um, but I think that sort of method of dialogue and being genuinely interested and respectful towards people who have different viewpoints is something that is sorely lacking today. Yeah. And it's not the case that you can't find this uh, in one-on-one debates or discussion shows. You know, Andrew Sullivan will certainly have on people who disagree with him and he enjoys the discussion. He had on Ezra Klein, who does the same thing. They both kind of make a big deal about how rare it is. I'm speaking more of the ongoing, but it is rare and rarer and getting rarer still, but I'm speaking more of the ongoing panel discussion, which can be a food fight. But when when it's not, it's joyous. And so that's why I've been trying to lean into some tag phrase like enjoy the debate or a joyous debate or what was the one we actually chose? Um, delightful, delightful disagreement. I don't know. Do you like any of is do, does that do you cotton to that, Virginia? I like that. Yeah. D- well, maybe disharmony. I mean, disagreement see, or, or discord. Um. Yeah. Discord is good. There's the. There is, though, there is, though, we could disagree without being disagreeable thing that just makes me go. No, exactly. I, I mean, I think we should be disagreeable. Like the point is to like almost come to blows and then re- retire <laughs> to have cigars. Right. Like it's like in um, in a James Joyce short story, like just people um, like lots of bloviating. That's what I want to hear. Lots of, <laughs> but also, also lots of uh, and Mike and I always do this, like sentences that it's not clear they're going to land. You know, just right. like take the risk, float up there and hope you can land your point. 20 um, minutes ago, there was a predicate. Oh, OK, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> and Jamie, do you I mean, do you run into this in your own life, having really fruitful, satisfying arguments with people who maybe you almost never see eye to eye with? And if so, what's the key to maintaining those relationships or having or being able to have a second argument after a disputatious first one? I mean, I've always been in environments where I'm sort of the minority politically. You know, I'm I'm slightly right of center, or I don't I don't even know if the spectrum makes any sense anymore. But yeah, I I was at Yale. I was in the uh, Yale Political Union and the Independent Party. This is sort of like the Oxford Union slash the British Parliament. So there were parties within this big debating society. I was in the Independent Party, whose motto is "Hear All Sides," which might be good for us. Um, and then I worked at the New Republic magazine, a center-left magazine. I've been at the Brookings Institution, so I've always been, you know, surrounded by people who I don't always see eye to eye with. And I think it's it's uh, it's it's important to to do that if you're in this business. Um, and it can be hard. It certainly can be hard. Although I would say over the past couple of years, because this political spectrum has been so scrambled, I find myself um, seeing eye to eye more with people on the, you know, the old left, if I could use that term, the Marxist left, people who have a class analysis of society. I might disagree with their prescriptions, but I, but uh, in sort of their their critique of identity politics, I find particularly interesting. So it's a, it's a, it's a weird and confusing time in our country and in our political discourse. And so I'm looking forward to uh, figuring out the weirdness with you both. 
I just like when at times when so much is up in the air, I mean, the pandemic did this sort of for our relationships and, you know, our, our practical life in the world, where are we going to live? How are we going to organize our work life? But the politics since 2016 have done this, have worked a complete audit on at least my own beliefs. So I too have found some strange, uh, strange bedfellows, um, in it, since Trump was elected, you know, he like cracked a lot open, a lot of pieties, a lot of dogma, um, that, uh, that, you know, I had sort of blithely taken for granted and it's been, um, you know, confusing as Jamie says, and also immensely interesting and stimulating. Yeah. And you're right about the old left or even the Marxist left, which I, I have no truck with, I would say. But one of the most insightful essays about the 1619 Project, which I'm glad exists and was certainly at least a useful provocation, if not, I don't think deserving of a Pulitzer or whatever that means. But one of the best ones was in the World Socialist uh, Workers website or the World's, yes, the World's Socialist Party. The World World in that gives it a little bit of grandiosity that I like. But if I may... Jamie, when you were at Yale in the earlier part of this century, what what were the self-described conservatives? So if you were an independent, what would conservatives say, here's our belief, and were there any famous ones we should know about? Well, Yale obviously has a very distinguished sort of conservative tradition, again, going back to William F. Buckley. Um, and we had a wide variety of conservative tribes at Yale, there were the co- the college Republicans who were the kind of, you know, uh, George H. W. Bush and George W. Bush, also Yaleys, right? The more kind of tra- <laughs> that's right traditional tra- traditional party establishment types. Uh, there was a Tory party within the Yale Political Union, and they uh, wore bow ties and spoke with fake British accents. Uh, oh, there God. was the party of the right, where um, would. R- People would sort of enter that party, uh, often, you know, Jews or agnostics, and they would end up converting to Catholicism. Uh, and they, but they also produced many distinguished conservative people in our political discourse today at various think tanks and whatnot. Uh, there was a conservative party, um, which was again more of a traditional establishment conservatism. Yes, it was a, a kind of an ideological safari every week visiting the Yale, visiting the Yale Political Union. Because then, of course, we had various left wing parties as well. And yet, you know what? We all got along. We all together every week we'd gather for a debate, and at the end we'd all go off to Maury's, which was the you know restaurant slash bar of choice. Uh, and people got and, and and there were no fist fights. There were no no one crying. No one screaming at each other. Um, and that, and I, and I miss that. And it's strange now when I look at what's happening on universities at Yale in particular, you know, I didn't graduate that long ago. And yet the political discourse and the way that students relate to one another has completely and utterly changed. It's completely changed. Even among that debate club? As I understand it, the, 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 the YPU is almost entirely dominated by the right now. Uh, the, le- the left-wing students don't really participate. They're out doing activism and other things. They don't really believe in, in, in um, intellectual debate. So that gets to a critique, and Virginia, I wonder what you think of this, that maybe the reason that it was all f- not fun and games, but certainly not taken as life 
or death was that in 2006, sure, there was a war of choice that wasn't going well, although among maybe the Tories and the descendants of the Bushes at Yale, they would deny that fact. But the stakes weren't not even as high, but as clear that we indulged in this play acting. And now in the year 2022, it has become clear just how high the stakes are, that Trump was elected and whatever we told ourselves about global warming being a looming crisis is now upon us. And so we no longer can just act so blithely. We have to act with more urgency. Is there is there truth to that as you see it, Virginia? I mean, I feel like we shouldn't air this if Jamie's thing is going to be on there because nothing could be more alienating to, you know, the regular electorate than hearing about, you know, all liberals and Democrats, first of all, of multi of all these different shades that are so complicated, the People's Republic of Judea and whatever those things from Monty Python. Um, But all, you know, it sounded to me when you were describing the Republican various shades of right wing parties that they were it was like we have all kinds of music, country and Western. But, um, <laughs> a broad panoply of different exactly. people who tie their own bow ties and wear their blue tie. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, well, I, th- I think Jamie leaves out how intense the discussion was that we might put as, as Huntington and Fukuyama during the Iraq war. So, you know, the idea that we would I'm simplifying, obviously, but retreat globally to tribal identities, to religious and tribal identities, and that there would be a sort of what clash of civilizations, or that liberal democracy was inevitable, and uh, you know, we, uh, rising tide would raise all boats. The Fukuyama position, and I think that that did become existential for some people. I mean, it was a lot of people I knew in that time were carving out identities for themselves, you know, gay, Jewish identities that were, it was newly open that you didn't have to convert to Catholicism, as you say about that group, in order to maintain a uh, conservative, conservative position. And you had evangelical parents you had to answer to or think about. And that meant whether you were going to identify as a Christian or not, that the 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 uh, universal solvent of political identity that is four-year residential college where everyone turned into kind of the same thing, was now suddenly when you, you know, came back to the real world, was that really what you were going to do? You know, I mean, I was an arch feminist in college and then I wanted a job in journalism and there was skirt chasing. Um, And suddenly, you know, I couldn't quite stand on ceremony if I wanted to, you know, get a promotion at The New Yorker as a fact checker. Um, and you know, I'm sure the same, the same was true for the two of you, how much you are going to forward your identity and some of your tribal affiliations and even some of your superstitions, um, was, you know, was a decision everybody had to make. And I think that mapped very nicely onto that Fukuyama Huntington, um, dispute. Yeah, I had to quash my New York accent some of the time at NPR. It was quite the sacrifice. <laughs> there is one. So here's a strain of thought. And uh, again, I don't know how much I subscribe to it, but I think one of the reasons why the idea of let's disagree amicably, then go have uh, a, a cocktail has fallen away is because 
Here's the dynamic. Uh, there have been great gains and the normalization of uh, gay life, the Me Too movement with its necessary corrective to just rampant sexism, other, other gains, societal gains, attitudes we wouldn't have now, diversity in many walks of life, but most notably in the entertainment we get. All good, all good, all to the good. At the same time, going on at the same time as these gains happened, there was fractiousness. There was a falling apart of the idea of being amicable. And it is easy to see, especially if you're a young person, that the two are not just coincidental, but correlated. We need to fight this fight and not have any pleasant interactions with our enemies in order to make these gains. I don't know if it's true, but I don't know how to disaggregate the two things that have been going on. There's also a mode of thought that says the gains have gone way too far. But even putting that aside, you know, can you say that the era of amicability was also the era of more oppression. And guess what? When we started fighting and being less nice, whoever the we is, we got less oppression. We got more freedom. We got more accountability among the ruling class. I know. Is there a good counter argument? I feel that that is not a correct way to look at it. But is there a good counter argument that either of you can articulate? Well, I mean, can I tell my Saddam Hussein anecdote now? This is the perfect time for your Saddam Hussein anecdote. Yes. I don't know what your Saddam Hussein anecdote is. But I know, let us so uh, right, so this may have to be censored. So um, you all remember when Saddam Hussein was executed by hanging um, by Iraqi officials, um, and it was very, it was a spectacle, and there was even conversation um, on the networks about whether they should show the drop. Suddenly, everyone was using the phrase "drop." Um, right. So they, but they, because they had some U.S. cameras in the room, they ended up not showing the drop. Um, And to report on it, the New York Times did what you did in those days, which was go talk to the people outside the gallows and ask them, Iraqi officials, what Saddam Hussein's last words were. That's the best you could do. What's the mood of the gallows, Jim? What's the mood? Yeah, feel it. What's going on in the room? Um, and, uh, and, um, And this Iraqi official dutifully reported, and the Times had this above the fold, that Saddam Hussein's last words were, death to the Zionists and the Americans, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, a video uh, was snuck out by someone. You all may remember this. And I was covering online video at the time and and monitoring sites that showed uh, Sami's dot video. And this video came up on a site called Ogrish, like Um, Mm ogre-ish. And uh, and it showed that it was very green and weird with an early camera phone made by someone who might deserve a Pulitzer Prize. And there's even a conversation that he might have been um, assassinated afterward. I'd still like to track that down. Um, what he showed having happened right before, uh, right before Saddam Hussein took the rope around his neck was that he yelled three words. Well, first he said, you know, there's no God but God, Allah, and so on. But right after that, he said, Mustafa, Mustafa, Mustafa. And I got this translated and very quickly, I mean, the phrases in advance of it, and very quickly realized or was told that Mustafa was his arch rival in Tikrit, when he was growing up, mm-hmm. he did not care about global issues. He just cared about the asshole down the street in Tikrit, which was a rough, rough neighborhood, as I understand it. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that I can think clearly about 
America, about Israel, about the world, about class, about race, if I'm always just worried about a person that snubbed me, you know, at the University of Virginia or at the at the bar. So my reason for wanting to talk to you guys is to clear all that air so that I'm not just holding a small, twisted little resentment that will get in the way of my thinking clearly about bigger issues. Wow. It was his rosebud. That's wow. a good one. I love it. It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. As a Zionist, it makes me feel a little bit better that, that you know, it's... He didn't care. Yeah, he, and like, he didn't care and about also, the Zionists. No, we have Kanye West for that. <laughs> he just, someone had, someone had cut him off in traffic named Mustafa. And so that's why we do what we do. Our guiding <laughs> principle and guiding light. I think we should all give credit and credence to Saddam Hussein. <laughs> well, I just don't want to go down yelling, Jamie Kirchick, Jamie Kirchick, Jamie Kirchick. <laughs> right? I'd like to die for a higher reason. <laughs> Plenty of other people will be doing that, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you, my personal Mustafas. Actually, I hope not. My my ex-Mustafas. And won't you join me in the next segment? So we are going to give the listeners of The Gist, who I hope and beseech become the listeners of Not Even Mad, a taste of what we'll be up to every week. Uh, will you join me in a moment for that? I'm in. Um, I will take your hand, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. As I drop through these galleries. Hello and welcome to The Gist, which is a little preview right now of our new show, Not Even Mad, where I will be joined by Jamie Kerchick and Virginia Heffernan every week. Now, what we want to do here is a little mini version of one of the segments, or maybe just a version of one of the segments, which should run about 15 minutes on Not Even Mad. I am of the mind of, uh, say, when the cast of Pippin goes on the Letterman show to do, you know, a four minute version of magic to do. I don't know, Jamie, if you will join me, if you have a coat of many colors or if you get the reference. I do, actually. Yes, I do. One of my <laughs> earliest musical experiences was uh, Jacob in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So. Who played him? Donny Osmond. Nice. The Mormon version. <laughs> I think I saw it with Tom Wopat, and that coat was red and yellow. And speaking of which, blue and red, which brings us to a recent CBS survey that has the Democrats trailing by two percentage points on the generic ballot. A New York Times survey gives Republicans a 4% edge among likely voters. Now, that same New York Times poll a month ago had Democrats up by one. This is part of the trend seen in national polling, generic ballot polling, individual Senate races, with exception, that shows that where the Democrats were once seen as outperforming their natural circumstance, given the popularity of the incumbent president and the economy, now they are mostly in line with the idea that there will be something of a Republican wave. So, some theories to explain this. One, minor fluctuation in a generic ballot. Who cares? Two, the fundamentals are coming back to roost. Three, 
crime, although I guess this argument goes something like this. Two months ago, America didn't realize crime was high, and now they do. Or maybe all those Republican ads reminded them that crime's a big issue. For abortion, once was very much motivating Democrats. Now, with time to process it, it's less salient. Five, the January 6th committee didn't really move the needle. But again, I asked, did it a month ago when Democrats were leading a little bit on generic ballots? And six, and we got to say this again, it's a minor fluctuation. Who cares? Jamie Kerchick, do you care? Yeah, uh, I I uh, think that we're going to see a Republican wave. And I think because of the fundamentals, we have 8.3% inflation. And that's ultimately what this comes down to. It's hurting people in their pocketbooks. Uh, I think the Democrats have kind of caught high on their own supply. They think that, you know, the January 6 hearings and abortion, they're, they're obsessed with these with these two issues, and they think that that's going to sway voters. I mean, if you're on MSNBC all day, then yeah, perhaps you would you would think that. But you know, get out into the country, and these are not decisive issues. You know, whether you think that's right or not, they're just not moving voters in the same way that eight point three percent inflation is. But Virginia, wasn't it eight point three percent a month ago when Democrats had a little bit of an edge? Yeah, I mean, we don't. Are we talking through the real issues? I mean, obviously, inflation is a global issue, and holding corporations to count would be who are unnecessarily gouging consumers under the guise of inflation is the problem here. But laying laying uh, inflation in particular at the feet of the president is a, is a nasty habit we got in the '70s, and it seems like old habits die hard. Um, as for the other things, as for crime, I don't know why Democrats don't run on people who are tough on guns or weak on guns as opposed to tough on crime, weak on crime, because it's in the states where people voted for Trump, that crime is highest. St. Louis uh, in uh, Josh Hawley's state, St. Louis is the most murderous uh, city. It's in cities. It's in cities which are Democrat controlled. So you can point to the states, but these are all, crime in America is become, is an urban problem. And those well, cities and those urban areas are governed by Democrats. So to, to put that on the Republicans is not accurate, I don't think. Well, they're governed by Democrats overseen by a Supreme Court that strikes uh, sensible cr- uh, gun bills from uh, our legislature. That's anyway, exactly sorry, I right. I mean, that's exactly right. And but that's not why, you know, that just happened. That's not why crime is high or predating the latest Supreme Court decisions. Uh, I just want to point that out as a dynamic. But OK, yeah. I interrupted. Go ahead. I mean, it's still it's still a marvel to me that St. Louis, where gun ownership is super high, is now on the list in the top. This is the number one most murderous uh, city in the country. It's on the list of most murderous cities in the world. That's the list that has, you know, Tijuana and Juarez. Um, and uh, and I think it's the first time an American city has cracked those numbers. Not New Orleans, USA. not New York, not Chicago. USA. Yeah, go, go, go uh, gateway to the West, go St. Louis. Um, but anyway. I mean, we're not we're not obviously talking facts here. We're talking about the thing that Americans love to talk about, which is perception. David Brooks in in yet another just unctuous, like ill-informed column says this thing about uh, the message. Democrats are, you know, don't have a good story, but Republicans have this great story about elites. You know, it would be the other way around. He didn't say that it was the other way around when it looked like Democrats were winning. I think, frankly, this is a fluctuation is a natural fluctuation in the in these general polls. Um, I think it like keeps the horse race alive. But if in fact, white women 
are once again getting, you know, getting hysterical about crime and and taxes, you know, this idea of IRS expansion, when in fact that punishes people of only over $400,000, not, not below it, and about Biden and inflation. You know, I don't know what to do anymore. I mean, white women have, like, it, it, they don't have a legitimate reason to to blame Biden for these things and Biden's and, 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 and they haven't, they aren't paying attention to Biden's achievements. Um, and I, you know, that's, I say that's just white women in the Republic- than in anger. Well, uh, the Republicans are, the Republicans are gaining among Hispanics. They've gained among African-Americans. So you can't just pin this on white women. It is the, yeah, so the big fluctuation in the Times poll is that independent women by a massive amount, there are, and it's not like uh-huh. independent women are half the electorate, but they did swing from one poll to the next uh, from Democrats to Republicans. Yeah. Two weeks ago, we heard that, uh, you know, dads, white dads who had voted for Trump were now voting Democrat on the idea that they didn't want their daughters to keep the baby of a rapist. Um, You know, I don't know. I do think this is natural fluctuation. I will also say that it is like highly disconcerting and, you know, upsetting to me if this if we're going to have another election, you know, somewhat like uh, like 2016. I don't think we will, though. I still think that that we're going to Democrats will gain we, I'll just say we, will gain in the uh, will gain in the Senate and uh, and lose the House. Um, I but think it, that it won't be a shutout. I think that best case that the Democrats can hope for is still the 50-50 Senate because I think the Republicans really blew that Georgia seat. Although, I, and I don't think Oz will win in Pennsylvania, but you know, I think they'll pick up in Nevada. This, I guess, conventional wisdom at this point or what the polls say. Um, it's funny, when you were articulating your positions, I agreed with you mostly policy-wise, Virginia, but in terms of the messaging, saying, you know, you can't really blame Rep- uh, Democrats for the messaging, to some extent you can. And I understand on the crime issue, for instance, I understand that Joe Biden comes out and just couldn't be more clear we support the police and other national prominent Democrats. But there is enough of a message within the party and certainly among activists who are aligned with the left that they their solutions uh, to criminal justice were not justice in the minds of the vast majority of Americans. And fair or not, but to some extent fair, if you had to pick one party that is or plausibly is going to bring crime down, I can understand where if that is a gigantic concern, you would pick the Republican Party just because many elements of the Democratic Party and not Tim Ryan, you know, who's actually mm-hmm. up for vote to be your senator and not now not- Demings, who was a cop. Not Val Demings and not many of these people running, but maybe John Fetterman, who I still think will win. You know, if you're only voting on crime and the choice is between Fetterman, who nine out of his 10 messages are about things I agree with, compassion towards ex-convicts, compassion towards the falsely accused, rational sentencing laws. But are you going to pick between that and Oz? Oz has the clearer message. And it's not. And there are other Democrats who really did have a shameful message on the issue of crime. Huge issue. And then you also said that, you know, inflation is a global problem. Sure. It is, but to be fair, to be very, very fair to the Republican argument, which is tied up with Republicans are partly responsible uh, or largely responsible for inflation. Oh, and also Trump did nothing wrong on January 6th. But let's just take the inflation argument. Democrats have been 
inaccurate when they say that their votes and only their votes weren't a cause of inflation, not the biggest cause, but a cause. But the thing is, among the cause, you also said, Virginia, that we always blame the president. You're right. We do. That's not fair. But among the things that you can actually blame an actual party for, the Democrats are more to blame for inflation because they and they alone pumped so much money into the economy with those bills to get us out of the coronavirus and COVID pandemic. Now, they would say, still, it was worth it. They would say that, but they're not saying that on the campaign trail because they know it's a losing argument. So my assessment is, yeah, mostly minor fluctuation. And I don't know if the generic ballot will mean much in terms of the Senate, but The situation that the Democrats are in is more of their own doing and they have responsibility for more so than people are just going to decide based on, you know, their weird perception of reality. I mean, inflation exists. Absolutely. I I mean, (laughs) as far as messaging goes, and I hate talking about messaging because everyone's a messenger and a brander at heart. But um, but I, I do think there's something to be said for putting toughness in the like relocating toughness to people who want to be tough on guns. Um, and you know, it's just the gun States that have the high murder rates. It really is. Um, you, you can look at the numbers. Um, and, uh, and you know, why, why does toughness have to involve locking more people up instead of, uh, instead of, um, keeping weapons out of their hands? Um, it just seems that seems to make sense to me as a messaging thing, as an inflation thing. You know, if people vote on the out party, if there is inflation, then they will vo- all vote Republicans. There is inflation and they might vote for the out party. It is a bad idea. And, you know, when you say re- uh, Democrats are to blame for inflation because of what they did, I mean, as I will keep boring you with, I just got back from Taiwan. Inflation happens to be a problem there. Also in the Dominican Republic, also everywhere in the world. Also in England, where, uh, you know, Republicans or Tories have made a mess of things even worse than anyone here has ever done, including Trump. So uh, so I, you know, blaming Biden and blaming the Democrats in these in these congressional races is a mistake, but people might do it. Um, I just think it really, again, comes down to the economic indicators and um when you when you have inflation that's this bad, it doesn't matter who's uh, responsible for it. Almost people are just looking at the numbers and they're looking at their daily expenses and they're looking at their gas prices. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, Mike is right. The Democrats are the party generally of more spending, and you pump more money in, into the economy. Mike didn't even mention the student loan forgiveness, which you had uh, former Obama officials. Was it Jason Furman, the, uh, who had a very high-ranking role as an economist in the mm-hmm. Obama administration, was saying that this was very inflationary and 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 only going to contribute to the problems. So when you when you add that to the spending bills, um, that I think is the overriding issue. And uh, uh, I think it's the the determining issue. And I think all this attention that's been given to the January 6th committee uh, and uh, abortion, which I think that the decision on abortion, and I I am pro-choice personally, but I think that the the ruling was the constitutionally sound one. And I think it will actually move us generally in a direction closer to where Western Europe is when it comes to abortion laws. the 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 reality does not match the liberal media hysteria 
And I think we've had, you know, six years of media hysteria because of Donald Trump. And uh, that plays very well to a certain uh, certain pockets of the country. But to those independents who are crucial in these elections, they're looking at their daily reality and they don't see a country that's becoming fascist. Uh, they don't see the... Um, you know, the end of democracy. I mean, how, it was only a couple of months ago that the Democrats were saying that there was going to be new Jim Crow and the end of the end of voting. And then we have, you know, record turnout now uh, in these states where, where there's supposedly no free, uh, free and fair elections anymore. So again, I think it goes back to sort of the, the, the Democrats being, you know, high on their own supply, listening too much to what is being said on MSNBC and not really being in touch with those middle uh, voters uh, who they need to win elections. Well, I've seen MSNBC's ratings, and I don't think most voters are watching that. No. Here, you ready for this as an Occam's razor? Uh, when the conventional wisdom was that, you know, this is a year for Republicans, let's go to July 4th weekend, gas prices average nationwide, $4.87. Then we go to the time, ooh, it looks like Democrats are gaining. Let's take a week in September. September 19th, gas prices, three seventy-seven, mm-hmm. And now, oh, the Republicans have roared back a little bit. Gas prices on October 10th average, $4.34. Maybe that's all it is. Maybe that's all the perception. Yes of inflation is as if those big giant signs on the corner are mm-hmm. under four or over four on average. I think it is sort of sad that when it all, all this political commentary and punditry, it really just boils down to what, what are gas prices right now? Yep. <laughs> and that's almost going to determine who wins our elections. It's feeling it at the pump. Yes, pain at the pumps is making us angry and upset, but the three of us shall continue to be not even mad, I hope, for many, many years to come. First show is on Wednesday. Jamie Kerchick and Virginia Heffernan, thank you both so very much. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara, just assistant producer, often produces the show in the nude. He's not even clad. Joel Patterson, senior producer of The Gist, has been to Tobago, but not even Trinidad. Michelle Pasca, COO of Peachfish Productions and Peachfish Projects, the ancillary holding company that's responsible for Not Even Mad, believes in solid prints, maybe a pinstripe, but she does not believe in plaid. The gist is produced, by the way, far fewer puns on the new show. My vow to you. This will be the pun area, and that will be the, you know, lots of fun, not too many puns. I find that my co-hosts like them, but they can be oppressive. I indulge on The Gist. Thank you for joining me in that indulgence. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening. Dan, because there's no old saying about what's behind a miserable failure. Jane, you ignorant slut. (laughs) 